Hi, everyone. I'm Heaven. Uh, Are you kidding me? I'm Tracy. Oh, my God. <laughs> and welcome to another round with Heaven and Tracy. I thought that was beautiful. You're ridiculous. <laughs> What up, Kevin? How are you? Um, I'm chilling. I'm chilling. Yeah. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) What are we doing on the show today, Trace? So it's Body Week at BuzzFeed. And during Body Week, we think about and talk about and write about bodies, what it's like to have one, what happens when you have one, all that stuff. And we do it all across the website. Mm -hmm. So we thought it would be very appropriate to welcome to the show Padma Lakshmi, who... Yes, you probably know from Top Chef. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got a new book out. It's called Love, Loss, and What We Ain't. And that book talks a lot about like women's bodies and how we treat them and how we talk about them. Word. Padma also focuses specifically on endometriosis mm-hmm. and how we think about uh, women's pain, how it's diagnosed, how mm-hmm. it's not treated. So I'm really excited to get into that. Me too, because I think that most conversations about bodies seems to focus on like body image and what's going on on the outside of your body. Mm. But yeah, the inside of your body is also a There's battle a lot. Ground. There's a lot yes. going on there. So we hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you want to learn more about Body Positivity Week at BuzzFeed, go to buzzfeed.com slash body positivity, all one word. Also, we asked y'all a while ago for your street harassment stories. And uh, since so much of street harassment conversation has to do with like our bodies and how like we walk down the street with them we thought it was appropriate to play those here so we're gonna hear from y'all so we're gonna get in our little magic school bus hop on in there (laughs) let's get into it yes so we are very excited today to have Padma Lakshmi in the studio. Um, she's the host of Top Chef, the author of several cookbooks. She's modeled, acted. She's the co-founder of the Endometriosis Foundation of America, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she wrote about all these things in her new memoir, Love, Loss, and What We Ate. So thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Welcome, welcome. I don't read a lot, which <laughs> I am embarrassed to say. <laughs> At least like, you're honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like at some point, like I just lost the ability to like sit for the amount of time required to read a book. That said, I was trying to figure out like memoirs in general, celebrity memoirs in particular. Are they always this like open and no, truthful? No, they are not. I was like, oh my, yeah, was okay. Like, she's spilling all the tea and I love it. But not um, even just like spilling tea. You talk about relationships, sex, right. your body and your relationship to your body, um, right. health, mm-hmm. and just like really frank and like honest, refreshing ways. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I... Hope you don't think this is a celebrity memoir because no, yeah, that's, that's not, what made me reconsider the genre. Yeah, that's really not what I wanted to do, and I think um, you know I'm really thankful for all the attention that the book's gotten. But I do think that me being well known, or some of the other people that I talk about in my life who are well known, didn't hurt the book. It certainly got it some attention that it probably wouldn't have gotten. But at the same time, there were a lot of misconceptions about the book because mm. what I've written doesn't really fit the the yeah. genre, as you say, but obviously it's going to be pegged in that genre. And I think there were a lot of preconceived notions like, you know, there's people that I talk about for only two chapters, but right. people, but what's been written about it is like, oh, she's writing yeah. this memoir about yeah. their relationship. No, I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. And if, yeah. you know, because people don't really bother to open the book, but mm-hmm. um, the people who have read it 
we'll see that that's certainly the case. A lot of the issues that I discuss in the book, I think all of us think about when we look in the bathroom mirror Mm. or get on the bathroom scale or in the privacy of, you know, having a drink or or a Mm. meal with a girlfriend or being on the phone with your sister, you talk about. But I had never seen it talk, these issues spoken about openly, and I wanted to have a frank conversation. Mm. Instead of talking about uh, your ex, Salman Rushdie, (laughs) we will focus on the issues. Yes, thank you. Uh, The rest of the book, you might say. (laughs) (laughs) So I read a lot of um, women's memoirs. So to me, it felt more in the the genre of like a Nora Ephron Mm -hmm. or Vivian Gornick's like odd woman in the city. Mm -hmm. More about like you, your relationship to yourself, to your parents, to the men in your life. I feel like that's a better genre to think about the book. Mm. Thank you. In fact, Nora was a huge influence on this book and on me. She Mm. mentored me at the end of her life. And when I was going through all these bouts of insecurity or writer's block or just talking and writing in circles, which I did a lot, she would tease me. She was very helpful with Mm. good advice, with just technical writing advice. Like what? Please share. (laughs) (laughs) Like a lot of times she said, your job is just to sit your butt in that chair for X amount of hours a day Mm. and don't move from that and turn off your internet and just, I don't care what you write about it. Don't, it doesn't have to be good. You can Mm -hmm. throw all of it away mm. when you wake up the next morning and you read it, but at least you'll have something there. And if you can't write, then you have to edit what you already wrote mm-hmm. or you have to read someone you admire, but mm. your ass cannot leave that chair <laughs> for, for those amount of hours. Mm. And it was very, was very helpful. <laughs> and she also said, like, don't think you're writing to everybody. Mm. Think about writing just to one person. Talk to one person because, mm. you know, I know you want a lot of people to to see your work or read your work or like your work, but The experience of reading is such a private one, Mm -hmm. which is what makes it so intimate and so good when the writing speaks to you. Mm. And, and, you know, when you're on the train or when you are sitting up in your bed or wherever you like to read on a Sunday afternoon on your couch, you have to be truthful. You have to be quiet. You have to slow everything down. And the same is true for writing that book. Mm. And that really helped me because, like, you know, there were so many times when I was like, who's going to give a shit about Mm. this stuff? You know, you feel like, oh, my God, like, who's going to care or is this interesting? And she also was very helpful there. She said, your job is not to judge, not to judge your writing or to judge what you're writing about or whom you're writing about. Your job is to bear witness Mm. for the reader about your life. And if you can just describe without being judgmental, regardless of what you're writing about, it will be worth reading. Mm. Who was the one person you were writing to when you wrote your book? I wrote to my best friend, Kristen. I write all my books and articles to her. Um, She published and edited both my cookbooks. She was the maid of honor at my wedding, and I've known her since, gosh, for almost 20 years. Wow. What a beautiful beautiful friendship. So I want to go back a little bit to baby Padma. (laughs) So you were born in India and you go back regularly. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you described it as kind of a awkwardness and melancholy about going home. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I was four years old when I first came to this country. 
I came to New York City, literally flew from New Delhi to New York by myself mm. as an unaccompanied minor. You oh, my God, me too. You really from where? <laughs> from where? Well, I had my sister, okay. but I was five and I moved to, uh, to America from Ethiopia. Okay. Yeah. So and almost just me, as far. Yeah. yeah. And me and my sister are like, is no one going to, we're just children. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> you can never do that today. Yeah. You, you know. cannot. Uh-uh. Wow. It was just what like a really saying? nice stewardess who watched over us. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But I came here and I I always felt like I had one foot in the East in India or Indian culture and one foot in the West. And, you know, within the confines of our little apartment or our home or whatever, we were, we are very Indian still. But mm. it was something like when you left that threshold of your house and you went to school, all of a sudden you became an American kid. Mm -hmm. But not wholly. You know, I still had this funky name, which frankly is very easy to pronounce now. <laughs> yes. But, you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't. And so... My mother, who was a single mom here in the city, also sent me back the week after school finished every June for three months out of the year. And so I still maintained very much the language and the culture and, and also a good, close relationship to the rest of my family mm. in South India, in Madras, which is now called Chennai. And my grandparents had gr other grandchildren living with them and, and my mother's siblings and their wives living with them. So it was like eight or ten people in a two-bedroom apartment. Yeah. I'm familiar. Yeah. <laughs> so that I think that also was such so in stark contrast to my existence as a latchkey kid here in New mm. York that I benefited from that in numerous ways that I didn't really appreciate until I was older. I write about being a brown girl in a white world because I think a lot of us feel that way. You know, there are more brown people in the world than there are white. Yes. Way more. Yes. <laughs> but, way outnumber everyone. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and I think probably when, when we were grandmothers, we may be having a very different conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, you mm -hmm. may, whoever's going to sit in your chair 50, 60 years yeah. from now may have someone being like, I just felt like I didn't see any mm. white people. Yeah. You know? yes. um, <laughs> my childhood is incredibly important to me. I don't think I could do what I do in my writing or on Top Chef if I didn't have this very specific bifurcated existence mm. because it allowed me to meld the best and worst, I guess, of two cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you say in the book you thought a lot about your American self and your Indian self coming to peace. Mm -hmm. What was that process like? I mean, it was a very slow and arduous one. but um, <laughs> I can imagine. It was actually, it happened in my office. It happened when I was an adult and I finally had a little bit of power to decide what the office culture was going to be like in my office. Mm. And so I brought in some priests and we blessed the office. I mean, I'm not even particularly religious. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm secular and I'm Hindu, but it was more the ritual of it. Yeah. I always tell young women, the money is great. You should try and do well for yourself in your career so you can buy yourself things and give yourself financial security. But it's not the money that's important. It's mm. the power mm. that that money gives you. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, was an important place to arrive at. When I could tell my employees that, no, I understood that they couldn't come to work because they had their period because I have endo too. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we're going to do things a little bit differently in this office or bring in elements of my culture that were important to me because they were who I am. And mm. so much of my creativity and, and what I do for a living has to do with who I am. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about the kitchen in your childhood. What was, what was that space like for you? My grandmother cooked on a two-burner stove, mm. and it just had one tiny window. 
If you look on my Instagram account, which is just at Padmalakshmi, and you scroll down, you will see a picture of me in a blue sari with a black blouse cooking. And that is the kitchen I describe. Aww. It is not pretty. Mm. But it was beautiful to oh, me. Oh, my goodness. Because on that marble floor, we peeled all the potatoes, chopped all the mango, grated all the coconut, mm. exchanged all the family history, made all of the household decisions, talked about, you know, who they preferred to marry my uncle <laughs> and why, you know, they shouldn't say it because then that would make my uncle go the other way. You know? <laughs> all the auntie teeth. All, yeah, exactly. All those things. And so to me, it was hard. It was so natural that I associated Food and femininity, they were mm. so intertwined together that I couldn't, I didn't, I never separated them. Mm -hmm. And there were these big cement shelves and they were really tall. And I would kind of climb up <laughs> one by one and they would have to keep moving these pickle jars ever higher and higher. <laughs> and higher. Because, you know, I was young. And so you don't want a six-year-old or seven-year-old to eat a bowl of yeah Serrano chilies, you know, <laughs> or like really, really heavily spiced, greasy Indian pickles, which mm -hmm. my stomach lining... You know, my grandmother was surprised I had any left. Mm. <laughs> and she's still alive and she still talks about this today. And I climbed up on it and, you know, like a temple monkey, like literally, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can't see me right now, but I'm climbing. She's doing a great I'm miming. A great miming. <laughs> and, um, on the top, I got this one jar and I had my left hand hanging there and I had my feet wedged on each shelf level and I grabbed this glass bottle and it was slick with oil and mm. so it just slipped out of my hands and crashed to the floor and because it was a you know tiled or marble tiled floor it shattered and there was oh. just chilies and yellow turmeric oil everywhere oh, and glass and you know the the metal lid was still clanging you know like it's like the long taking the longest time to stop like you know that like you're not done yet yeah and i'm just hanging there terrified because i can't jump down because oh, i'll literally no. be jumping down barefoot on glass oh, and my I, how long am i going to well, the oil, yeah. I mean, how long am I going to hang there? And I just didn't know what the heck to do. I thought they were going to skin me alive. <laughs> you know? And and then, you know, luckily my aunt Neela, who is more like a sister, and when I talk about her extensively in the book, she came and she rescued me and she kind of moved everything. She just got some newspaper and wiped everything to the side and at least rescued me and then told me to go away and never come back into the kitchen, <laughs> which kind of worked for the next two days. And then I was kind of sheepishly, you know, scurrying Two around. Days. <laughs> yeah. I love that you describe cooking as being so deeply in intertwined with your femininity. Mm -hmm. And I also love the discussion of femininity in your book. You describe endometriosis as sort of hacking away at mm -hmm. your femininity. Talk to us a little bit about what endometriosis is, mm -hmm. how you were diagnosed, and then I've got some follow-up questions. Okay, great. <laughs> so endometriosis, very simply put, is when the endometrium or the lining of the uterus cannot slough itself off and out, be expelled out of the body with your period every mm -hmm. month. Mm -hmm. The body is unable to expel that lining, and that lining, because it's very fertile and very powerful, gets reabsorbed by the body, grows outside of the uterus, pools in the in the cul-de-sac, in the reproductive cul-de-sac. <laughs> I know, we have one. <laughs> and uh, all of us have one. And um, it grows. You know, if you think about the womb as a garden where really human life 
begins. Mm. You need to think of endometriosis as weeds in that garden, and it grows just the same. Endometriosis tissue is very difficult to remove. Mm. And so when you get really severe cramps, that is your uterus trying to push it out. And every month that it can't push it out is like rings on a tree. There's layers Mm. and layers and layers. So it becomes even more painful. And for a lot of women, they don't get diagnosed for at least a dozen years. I mean, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 36, 23 years after Mm. I had my period. And I always had digestive problems. I always had lower back pain. I always had numbness in my hip or headaches or nausea or shooting, you know, pain shooting down one leg, all of which is extremely common. Mm. And I went to see a gynecologist regularly. I, you know, somebody had to prescribe me those pain pills because I was taking a lot of them every month and I was missing a week of school or work every single month. And I was you know, in bed with a heating bed or hot water bottle or whatever. And it affects at least, we believe, 10 to maybe even 15% of the female population, childbearing age population. Mm -hmm. In my mother's generation, there really wasn't much you could do about it because we didn't have the technology. It is the number one reason that women get hysterectomies. Wow. Um, But if you find it early in a young girl, you can change her life Mm -hmm. forever. You know, it doesn't have to be that dramatic. If I had been diagnosed at 16, say I got my period at 13, so 16 or 20 or 25 or even 30, those would have been 12 weeks a year, every year that I would have gotten back. Yeah. Those, t- you know, that time I could have been studying for exams, going to school dances, helping my mom in the kitchen, whatever it is mm-hmm. that I just had to sit out of my life and not be present for, mm. for anyone else either. Mm-hmm. And so in 2009, I started the EFA with my surgeon who did finally diagnose me when I was 36 and changed my life. Mm-hmm. And I've had several surgeries because you can't always get everything out in one. You know, you have to be careful of the woman's health and do whatever's possible safely. Mm-hmm. I had stitches on four major organs. Mm-hmm. Out of 19 biopsies for endo, 17 came back positive. Wow. Late diagnoses are so disorienting. Like when I was reading about how you found out that there was a medical reason for Mm -hmm. the things that was happening to you. It made me think of, I was diagnosed late in life with anxiety and ADD. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, oh my God, I'm not just lazy. Oh my God, I'm not just being... A drama queen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sensitive. Scaredy cat. (laughs) Talk to me about like the moment where you found that out. For me, and that's why I do have to speak about my marriage because it affected my marriage. And one of my missions in life is to raise awareness. And if I couldn't talk frankly about Mm. how it affected me, how could I expect anyone else to? Mm -hmm. And it's not fun. It's not fun talking about your period. There are better ways to talk about your vag. (laughs) There are funner ways. (laughs) But I thought it was important. And it did affect me all the time. Mm -hmm. It affected my intimacy. It affected how effective I was at work or at school or with my friendships or my family, because being in chronic pain makes all of your nerves on edge. And it doesn't allow you to be in a calm and rational and just stress-free state with which to make your decisions, whatever Mm. they are. So you're always dealing with a person that's under duress. Mm. And so, you know, I did think for a long time that I was high strung, that I was unnecessarily anxious or jumpy or thin-skinned. You know, of course I was. My hormones were going crazy. And by the way, endometrial tissue or endometriosis tissue is not just excess scar tissue. A lot of people will say that it is not. It has glands. It it 
responds to hormones, mm. you know, it grows and subsides with your hormones. That is why it makes you crazy in all kinds of emotional ways, mm. too. Mm-hmm. And I always tell young girls, like, pain is your body's way of telling you something is wrong. Yes. And it's not your lot in life to suffer just because you're a woman and just because your body can produce babies. Ugh. And we're conditioned yes. to expect that yes. pain because oh everyone gosh. says, oh, my God, you know, how is birth not, not painful? You have yeah. to, So you then attach pain automatically to every other aspect of your reproductive mm. system. Mm-hmm. A woman losing her sexual desire is so stressful because not only do you have all of these outside expectations that you're supposed to be mm-hmm. at once virginal but also a whore. So mm-hmm. you've got like yes. that whole thing going on. Sure, sure. But I mean, I know this because the medicines that I take for my anxiety, there are a lot of women who experience decreased libido, delayed mm-hmm. orgasm. I wasn't even having sex like that, honestly. <laughs> but, like, in those moments, I just felt, like, so ashamed and you embarrassed. Feel less than... Yeah. And, like, I was like, no, 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 it's not you. It's literally, like, me, and I'm sorry. But it's not you even know? you. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not even you. You know, people forget that something physical is happening to right. you. Absolutely. You know, of course, a lot of arousal is emotional and mental. Mm-hmm. But, like, if I had erectile dysfunction, there would be three drugs Absolutely. that I could take. And yeah. nobody would blame me mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. But because I'm a woman, you know, now basically there's that female Viagra is what they're calling it. I yeah. haven't tried it. I don't have occasion to. But, <laughs> you know, there are physical reasons that have nothing to do with how you may or may not feel about your partner or just in general. And we're just beginning to understand them. And I don't think that I fully understood them uh, for a really long time. And I I think my partner took it very personally, but I also took it personally. And I didn't know what to do and I didn't understand it. I Mm -hmm. thought, here's this person I respect. Here's this person I love. Here's this person I want to please Mm -hmm. and make happy. And I'm just not able to. And then, you know, exactly what you described. Yeah. Tracy, happened to me. I felt like a failure. I felt Mm -hmm. like a failure in my marriage. I felt like a failure as a woman. So, like, how did you deal because I mean it's hard when you're with somebody who is like kind and gentle but like with a relatively unsympathetic partner like how did you deal with that I want to be measured in in how I categorize him I think I'm very specific in the book about it Mm -hmm. but you know I think he also didn't understand it you know I talk about in the book how I even had my doctor call him because Mm -hmm. once I found out I wanted somebody who was kind of outside and had no emotional stake. It's just like yeah. a neutral party yeah. to to explain it. And 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 I think by the time we understood it, it was sort of a little, it was too little, too late, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think he's also of a different generation. I can't speak for him, and I'm not going to, but I did feel very alone, mm-hmm. you know, in my healing, in my discovery of what was wrong. Mm. Endometriosis is something that happened to me, but it also happened to him. Yeah, And I don't think he saw it that way. Mm. And I think perhaps if it had been something that we acknowledged was happening to our marriage as well, mm. maybe we would have dealt with it differently. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about how we don't take women's pain seriously, mm-hmm. both in terms of like, like it's a presence in your marriage, you need to acknowledge it, husband. <laughs> <laughs> but also medically, research-wise, like men are the standard and women's 
issues are never considered public health issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's going on on the research end of like, how do we get people to think about this? Well, it's really hard. Thank you for asking that. I mean, I last month went to D.C., to speak to lawmakers on both sides both sides of the aisle. You know, this is not a political issue. And right. I was trying to tell them, like, if you vote for this, it's just a win. There's no mm-hmm. doubt. No one's going to be like, oh, you suck. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you want to get women treated. You know? <laughs> yeah, so there's no downside. Mm. And, um, you know, we don't have a lot of money allocated to endo, which is the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think endometriosis is, in today's culture, what breast cancer was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, we always think of Betty Ford and all the things that she's done for substance abuse, which which are very significant, of course. But she was also very instrumental because she was incredibly open about her struggle with breast cancer. And that you know, started the wheels turning Mm. for a time like today where now we just get mammograms as pro forma, like at a certain age and we get checked and everyone from Angelina Jolie decides to write about, you know, having her breasts removed or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I think endometriosis is going through that now. Not only is it the number one reason women get hysterectomies, it's one of the leading causes of infertility. Mm. And many women in our generation in their 30s and 40s are delaying motherhood. Mm -hmm. And if you've never explored your fertility until you're ready to have a child, it may be too late. Like, Mm. you know, life is long and we can do a whole bunch of stuff and Mm. it's not like you need to have yourself figured out by the time you're 30. But if you can afford it, I recommend everyone freeze their eggs. Not Mm. for Fertilize them, just freeze Free. them for yourself. So it gives you insurance. It's not cheap, but it, it is, you know, better than anything mm. else you could spend your money on. It just buys you a little time. So you said um, in the book of your pregnancy that your body had a higher purpose, mm-hmm. that purpose being pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your relationship with food change and evolve once you got pregnant? It didn't change, actually. Mm. It really didn't. I've always been lucky. I've always, because I associate food and femininity, the preparing of it, the eating, you know, I I always had a good relationship with food. But when I got pregnant, I just tried to eat very healthy. And I I was pretty much eating like that anyway. I just cut out anything that was processed. I wasn't one of those women like some of my colleagues who lost the weight right right when they gave obviously all the weight was in their afterbirth because you know within eight days they were you know modeling swimsuits or whatever I wasn't like that I gained 45 pounds it took me 13 months Mm. to lose the weight and just get back to where I was and but that was okay like I you know at first I was worried about it like I actually gained the weight of my baby two weeks after she was born so Mm. you know I hadn't lost any weight and I thought (laughs) I was told that nursing would also help you lose weight and it does you know but it takes a while for your body to catch up Mm -hmm. I just decided that I wasn't going to be worried about my weight Mm. I decided it didn't matter because my body was about feeding Krishna, you know, it had done the thing that no doctor said it could do, or, mm-hmm. or every doctor said it couldn't do. I had such advanced endometriosis that in the process of all those surgeries, I had half of my left ovary removed, and I had my right fallopian tube taken out. Mm. So it's pretty much like tinfoil and rabbit ears down there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Holding everything together. <laughs> but, you know, it had done the un unbelievable it had produced this beautiful Mm. child and I was ready to kiss the sky I was so happy that that happened I didn't care if I grew a horn on my head I Mm. was just really supremely thankful 
But, you know, I'm vain and I'm on TV and there were ads for Top Chef on the sides of buses, you know, Uh so I'm not impervious to feeling insecure about my body, of course. But I just decided, like, after so much of my life had been focused on what I look like or being a model or being on TV, I just decided that at that point in my career, like, it should really be about my knowledge and my talent and about doing everything that's healthy for this child and for me. Mm -hmm. And that was the single most important thing I did. I absolutely have to ask you about eating your placenta. (laughs) Yes. Why and how (laughs) are my two main questions. (laughs) Perfectly valid question. Um, Okay, let's do the why. Uh You know, there's not a lot of research on it, so I don't want to sit here and pontificate and be like, everybody go out and, you know. (laughs) So it's not right for everybody. And it took me a while to get used to the idea. I am very lucky to have a naturopath and acupuncturist who has been with me and in my life for like 15 years. So I trusted her. I was really afraid because of the other things that were going on in my life and because I was bedridden the last trimester of my pregnancy that I would suffer from postpartum depression. And when you're pregnant, all your life force goes to your belly. All all the nutrition, everything, every bone and fiber of your body is focused on giving everything to that child as it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, you're creating this life, this mm-hmm. whole new being. And so after, it's very common for a woman to feel utterly depleted, both physically and emotionally, with, with good reason. And so some people believe, they're animals who do this in nature, that, you know, all that life force, all that almost marrow and blood and all that good stuff mm-hmm. that is our life force should be reconsumed by the body. Now, I did not, how? I did not um, fry it up with liver and onion. That's, that's how I thought this was done, no, honestly. No, <laughs> I mean, it was very, very anticlimactic. Basically, <laughs> it was dehydrated, powdered, and encapsulated. And I basically took two of them in the morning with breakfast. Mm-hmm. And that's how. I didn't think I would have been even able to entertain <laughs> the idea <laughs> if it wasn't in that very, you know, sanitized, right, huh? <laughs> easy form. Yeah. <laughs> like, what did it feel like? What did it make you feel like? Did you feel like you had more energy as you were taking them? Or? I don't know because I've only had one child. So I don't know what the experience of not taking placenta uh, pills is yeah, like. Yeah. But I was so afraid. I mean, look, I was bedridden for three months before the baby and then six weeks after. So, or actually not such a, yeah, almost. But I mean, I was only cleared to go back to work like five and a half weeks after I had Krishna. And so I would have done anything to buy myself some more energy and some equilibrium emotionally. Yeah, You know, I just wanted to give myself some insurance, I guess. Mm. I don't know if Mm. it helped or not. (laughs) This is so fascinating. I know. That's fair. That's allowed. You know, I mean, we just don't talk about it again. Like, you know, it's probably not the thing you want to tell anyone (laughs) on a first date, but (laughs) (laughs) but it was important. I wanted to talk about it because Mm -hmm. I wanted other women to talk about it because if it was worthy of helping us, Mm -hmm. you know, if it could help us, then it Mm -hmm. was worthy of bringing up. Yeah. I really love how open and candid you are. We talk a lot about like mental health stuff on the podcast and people respond so well to it. Like sometimes you just need to hear somebody say you're not by yourself. So mm-hmm. I, I really, really appreciate it. You aren't by yourself. I mean, that I felt by myself a lot because of endo, because of being brown, because of 
a million things. You know, being a model with this huge gaping scar on my arm at a time when there was no Photoshop 20 years ago. Mm. And I wanted to write this for all of those people that do feel alone. I wish I had read a book about some of this stuff when I was finding my own way. And so I wanted to write one so there would just it would just exist in the world. I think what people see of me on Top Chef is a very slim version of me. It's not inaccurate. That mm. that's really me up there, you know. <laughs> right. But usually I'm just in my sneakers and I'm going to have a pizza or a salad <laughs> with my girlfriends and I wanted to have these deeper discussions and I wanted to in the next phase of my career be known better as a writer and a good writer, not just a cookbook writer. Mm -hmm. And so it was a personal challenge to myself, this book. And there was no really no room in a cookbook or in my work on Top Chef to talk about some of these more serious issues that I believe affect <laughs> right. all of us. Absolutely. Imagine being on Top Chef and being like, so, and then Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> We have so many questions for you, but we have to transition to our rapid fire segment. What is it called, Tracy? So this section, <laughs> she this named segment, the segment. <laughs> I know I named it, and I'm always the one that has to awkwardly explain why it's called. All right, what it's go, called. Go, but go, it's go. called pew pew pew. So these are finger guns because rapid fire. Okay, <laughs> these are all just going to be like very random questions. What's the first thing you ever learned how to cook, like by yourself? Probably fried peas. Fried okay. peas? Mm -hmm. Like sautéed peas with a bunch of spices. Ooh. I'm listening. I think I would actually eat a pea under those circumstances. <laughs> it's really spicy. Yeah. Oh, oh just, no, you're losing Tracy. Uh, no. <laughs> no, you don't like spicy food? I wish I was tough enough, but I just, my it, constitution it, is not really? strong enough for really spicy food. So the food world is very mysterious to me. And I'm wondering what the next trends are because white people went crazy about guacamole randomly. Because <laughs> you put the it on bread. The toast situation was happening. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, toast is having a moment. I don't know. There are toast stores, <laughs> toast restaurants. It's really funny. Actually, one of the first things, not to rescind my answer, but one of the other first things I made was chili cheese toast. Ooh. But this was Oh, like, my God. I saw that recipe. And yeah. it looks so it good. It is good. And it's easy. And yes, you can make it, it with simple. a mild pepper if you don't want it to be so spicy. <laughs> yes, I will have to. I don't know. That was in the 70s and no one else was doing it. Mm. It's just, I don't know why toast is having such a moment. <laughs> There was a whole Portlandia sketch about, all right, the guy who did Brussels sprouts' PR is doing well. What can we do for celery? <laughs> yeah, How do we sell happen. celery? <laughs> I know. I feel like it's such a whim. Brussels sprouts did have a moment. They did have a moment. Yeah. Celery also, I would like celery to have a moment because <laughs> celery is really good for you. It's, I really it's enjoy got celery. It's got husk. And if you're having trouble going to the bathroom, celery is your friend. Ooh, I'm going to go buy noted. celery. Sorry. I just no, took no, no. this way down. <laughs> no, no, no. This, no, this, this is useful. This, this is the important information that we like to give to our <laughs> listeners. Okay. Um, what's your favorite type of mango? Mangoes are heaven's favorite everything. Yes. Oh, I actually like a green sour mango, which Ooh. is smaller, and you can buy them in Queens at Patel Brothers or any Indian market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to be sour, and we chop them up, and we make a curry out of them. And so if you like tart or sour things, Ooh. green mangoes. I have a question about Top Chef. Mm -hmm. So you have to, like judge people in front of their face but not like give away the judgment of their food mm -hmm. on your face mm -hmm. <laughs> and you say you had to develop what you call um an inscrutable facial expression 
It's just blankness. How do you do it? <laughs> right. How do you do it? How do I train to do this? I do not have a poker face at all. It's hard. You know, the funny thing is neither do I. I <laughs> suck at poker. Um, but I think, you know, empathy. Empathy hmm. is a good motivator. Like, I'm with these chefs more than anybody else on that judge's table. Mm. And I'm not judging them. I'm judging what they put on that plate for me to taste and eat. And I try to make my analysis of their food constructive. So if I'm critiquing them for not doing something, I try and tell them why so that they can learn from it. And Carla Hall is a great example of this in action. Carla was able to absorb the feedback that we gave her, all of us, and apply it to the next week's challenge. And you could literally see her performance getting better Mm. in a real-time way. Um, And so, you know, I just, I can't, I can't give away what I really feel right away because then the show ceases to have any suspense. And there's no reason, if you could see it on my face, there's no reason (laughs) to stay around after commercials. What's the worst pickup line you've ever heard? Or what is one of the worst pickup lines you've ever heard? My wife said that um, I could have a free pass. Oh, oh my, my god. god. No. Like you are my one free pass. Oh, wow. I'm like that you're not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Would you rather be served a slice of pizza by pizza rat or never eat pizza again? Oh no, I would take the rat. Oh, <laughs> easy. Easy. You know easy. what? I would too. There's no stipulation that says that you have to eat it. It's, it's like Whoa. Would you I would probably Whoa. eat it. <laughs> What, well, first of all, I don't know who or what Pizza Rat is. Oh, so Pizza Rat was this. <laughs> weird I don't even know why this was a phenomenon. viral thing. It, it should not have been. But Somebody was... took video of a pe- of a rat dragging a piece of pizza down a New York City subway. Oh, oh yes, I think I actually yeah. saw this. So Pizza Rat brings you a slice of pizza in his in his little mouth. Like after like, he know. dragged it on the down subway the platform, <laughs> which is the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> knows what's happening right there. yeah you know what though? i would just I, eat the cheese off the top maybe yeah i think yeah. i would also i feel like i do the opposite the the top the cheese is infected oh is that <laughs> is just it eat top the bread. down oh. oh i guess it was flipped both ways i don't know <laughs> i did see it i mean listen i'd have to be very hungry but pizza <laughs> is uh you know i'm a new york city kid i remember i went to ps 158 on the upper east side and there was a pizza parlor right across the street, and for seventy five cents you could get a slice, what? and for twenty five cents you could get a can of you know Seven Up or Sprite oh or whatever. And I wasn't allowed to have black soda. <laughs> we could only have like clear soda. This is better for you. And I don't know. My mother knew something then that we the rest <laughs> of society took a few years to catch on to, I guess. But and I was only allowed to have soda when I had pizza. Mm. But I would often have that for lunch instead mm. of yeah one doing dollar my, meal. What? Yeah. Instead of doing what my mother wanted me to do, which was go <laughs> home for lunch and eat the leftovers from last night's dinner. Right. Um, I would also eat a pizza, a pizza from Pizza Rat versus giving it up forever. Yeah, I, I think I would too. You know, sometimes you just got to take <laughs> just, your losses. You know, life is long. I want pizza in my life. <laughs> I love, I want pizza right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks, ladies. Um, such a joy. Yeah, where can people follow you and your work and where can they find out about the organizations you Sure. The organization is called the Endometriosis Foundation of America. Our website is endofound, E-N-D-O-F-O-U-N-D dot org. You can follow me at Padma Lakshmi on my Instagram and Twitter. And I just started doing Snapchat, although I can't 
tell you that it's very entertaining yet. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm really trying. And Me too. It's, that, it's a struggle. That handle is called the Padma Lakshmi because <laughs> somebody has my name, and I'm sure that one is more entertaining <laughs> than mine. Oh yeah, and you can get the memoir everywhere, Barnes and Noble or Amazon or mm. wherever. Everywhere you're. bookstores still exist. Yes, and that's right. And actually, support your local bookstores, please. Mm. It's available at all the local bookstores, like. McNally Jackson or Kitchen Arts and Letters and I really love um, independent bookstores so mm-hmm. if you're looking for Love Lost and What We Ate go to your store. Alright, let's Thank get you some so pizza. Much. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> the other day I was walking to the train mm-hmm. and um, I realized I left my headphones at home. Oh no. And I was like, oh my god. And so I tweeted, um, question, would you rather um, lick a public toilet or Ooh. be a woman walking down the street and taking public transportation without your headphones. Mm. So many women were Yo. like, I'd rather lick a toilet. Yo. Um, say all that to say, to say, it's still really hard to be a woman and walk down the street. And just these exist days. publicly. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want people to forget that, like, even that base thing is so mm. hard for women. And I think that a lot of people. Men especially don't understand how pervasive it is. Mm. So a while ago, we solicited your most ridiculous street harassment stories, like things you've experienced when you're just walking down the street, minding your damn business. Mm. Unfortunately, like we have thousands of these stories. Mm. So we got a lot of responses. And here is some of them. Worst case of street harassment ever. Picture it. Brooklyn, spring 2011, on my way home from Target from getting milk and cookies on my day off, because that's what you eat on your day off, milk and cookies, dressed in sneakers, yoga pants, t-shirt, hoodie, scarf still on my head, wool beanie covering the scarf, glasses, got my music in, minding my own business. You know how you get that feeling that somebody's talking about you, you just get that little tingle in the back of your neck? I turn my music off and I hear this drunken man with one broken arm and one broken leg waxing poetic about my ass. He proceeds to tell the entire B-26 that he wants to stick his finger in my ass because he's curious about what it smells like. The last person I expect to street harass me is a kind looking old man in a park. I was walking by, he made eye contact, I smiled, he said, uh, how you doing baby girl? I said, well I'm doing fine, how are you? And he said, oh, yeah, you are doing fine because you looking fine. And I was like, uh, okay, bye. But you're old, like, you should be kind and, you know, loving and all that and you just decided to street harass me, like, why? I was walking down the street and this like gaggle of white boys in a car and sort of like driving by and this dude leaned out the window and he was like, excuse me, excuse me miss, excuse me miss, you have a body that is banging, like as the car drove away. I'm, I'm a black trans girl living in the UK, living in London and one spring day I was just like walking down the street just I bought a new biker jacket, it looks so cute, and I was standing by crossing lights. And then a the guy slowly just walks up to me and says, 
I want to rape you and then murder you. And then I was like, sorry, no thank you, and ran across the road. <laughs> um, fucking scary moment, but I'm alive and I'm okay. Midday, middle of the week, uh, and I get to a street corner and this, this older white guy, maybe about 45, pulls up next to me in his moped, polo shirt, sunglasses, moped on the sidewalk, uh, and he looks at me, and I'm, I'm half Mexican, half Filipino, and I look pretty Latina. And he looks at me up and down in a leering manner and then goes, Si se puede, and then drives off as if si se puede was some kind of come on to me. So he drives off and I yell, screw you, and I'm, I'm offended and baffled. And then I remember that that's not the first time someone has used si se puede as a come on to me. I've had that happen in LA. Um, I've definitely had it happen before. But to have it happen out here in Hawaii, again, was pretty ridiculous. My strangest experience with street harassment happened last year. Um, I was a junior in high school. I really love wearing weird kind of out there makeup and one day I decided to wear blue lipstick to school because it went with my outfit and I looked fierce as hell in it. So I'm walking to the car circle where my dad is waiting to pick me up so this all happened in front of my father and this group of boys see me and they all start you know hooting and hollering and one of the meals hey baby want to come over here and make this dick look like a smurf which is not only disgusting and should not be happening on a high school campus but also reflects very poorly on the quality of your junk so that just goes to show that there is no logic behind street harassment it is just to make women feel unsafe especially 16 year old girls who like putting weird colors on their face. When I was about 16 or 17 years old, I was walking down the street in New York City. It was St. Patrick's Day. There were a lot of drunk people all around me. And one guy kind of loomed up in front of me, leering at me and started saying, chocolate ice cream, chocolate ice cream. And I thought, really? Usually when you're trying to compliment someone, you tell them they're hot, not cold. crazy thank you <sighs> yeah. to everybody who called in we're so sorry that you have stories like this to mm. even share but we're happy that you shared them with us yeah everybody be better stop just do better just be a better freaking person mm. let us walk down the street in peace and men check your fucking men get your cousins get your friends get your people be useful for once for once <laughs> It's time to buy some rounds. Baby, come through. You deserve rounds tonight. Mm. Uh. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to <laughs> this hour of Smooth Jams. <laughs> rounds edition. Tracy, who are you buying a round for? My round today is for a show called The Wayans Brothers. Ooh. It was such a funny show. Like, corny, cheesy, campy, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. The show stars Marlon Wayans and Shine Wayans, who are two of um, 875 Wayans children. <laughs> so it was on 1995 through 1999. So this is like peak black 90s mm. 
sitcom Word. swag. Word. And in the show, they are brothers. Oh my gosh, it had the best theme song. Oh, ever. It did. We're brothers. <laughs> we're happy and we're singing and we're color. Banana. Give me a high five. Oh my God, that was so charming, Tracy. <laughs> Thank you. Give me a high five. Um, they own a newsstand. Um, Marlon is trying to become an actor. Mm-hmm. Sean is just like a ladies' man who, like, <laughs> I honestly can't remember what he did. They were both very handsome. They were both very, very handsome. Sean had the S curl going on. Yes. I think they both had the S curl <laughs> going on. And it was so just like goofy and ridiculous for no reason. Yes, I loved it. It was so good. There was there's a lot of like bad puns in the show. Oh goodness. <laughs> and you know how I feel about puns. I know how you feel about bad puns. <laughs> <laughs> there was this one episode where they parodied Romeo and Juliet, which I think is a thing that like literally every sitcom has ever done. <laughs> so true, there, true. it's like Romeo and Juliet in the hood, you know, like Of course. So like after like all the the shit happens, there's mm. this like two minute period at the end of the show where Marlon Wayans is just making so many awful puns <laughs> one after the other like he would run he was like grieving and mourning something mm. right so he would run to the cash register and start pushing buttons it just don't add up lord <laughs> just don't add up <laughs> also I have a friend shout out to Lauren who has a husband shout out to Malik and uh, we were someplace hanging out and Malik said a line from the show. Mm. And the line, so there was another episode where Marlon was trying out stand up comedy. And like, <laughs> before he would start roasting somebody, he mm-hmm. was like, put the spotlight on Pops and make it hot. To. <laughs> and he said that. And I was like, did you just quote the Wayans brothers? And he was like, how did you know that? And it was a very emotional bonding moment. It's a, it good, was, it's a good, like, bird call for your people. It is. When <laughs> you lose your friend in the crowd. Like, <laughs> Just shout some wings. Wings, um, We're happy and we're singing and we're calling. <laughs> just shout that into the crowd. You'll yes. find them. <laughs> uh, it was just a good, fun, black-ass, ignorant-ass show. Yes. Um, I highly recommend it. Who's your round for? I would like to buy a round for the MoMA, the Museum of Ooh. Modern Art in New York City. Ooh, I still have not been to the MoMA yet. Uh, first of all, do that. Yes. Second of all, I want to buy a round specifically for the film screening department of MoMA. People forget that they show movies there all the time. I had no slept idea on, slept on. Movies. So because uh, I was a Columbia student, we had these IDs that let us get into a bunch of the, the museums for free. Mm-hmm. One thing I hate about New York is their museums are mad expensive. Mm. It's disrespectful. Yes. I come from a D.C. area where D.C., like everything but one museum is free. What? So first of all... Mm. So because I had this past, there was this one summer, I just literally, after work every day, I'd just go see a different movie. And they have like such a nice wide array. So for example, there's like the art house movies that you're never going to see in like theaters. One of them, which I really, really love, is called An Oversimplification of Her Beauty. Mm. It's by this this director, Terrence Nance, and it was- uh, Oh my God, I know him. Wait, you know him personally? Yeah. What? Yo, I met him on Black Planet years ago. In what context? Uh, we were both in, I was in college, so I was in Lexington. That's like the height of my Black Planet uh, mm, days. Word, word. And he was somewhere like Indiana or somewhere else in Kentucky. And like, we've never like met or anything. Mm. We would just like send messages back and forth. And somehow I ended up on his listserv. So like when he was like raising money for the word. film and like having like little screeners, I was like, oh, look at him doing stuff. Word. So the movie was executive produced by Jay-Z, Dreamhampton, Wyatt Sinek. What? So I was like, 
it's wild that I cannot see this movie despite how big the names are behind it. Mm-hmm. So I was just glad that like the moment had a screening of it. So that's like one one genre of movie that they'll play. Like mm-hmm. movies that are like pretty critically acclaimed but just don't have distribution. Right. But the others are like I don't really like classic movies. Anything before like the eighties, honestly. I'm oh, like Bless Ooh. your heart. Bless your heart. But <laughs> once in a while I will go see one and it's usually playing at the moment. Uh-huh. In general, they have like a good mashup of like older classic movies, contemporary like European, African, uh, North African movies. Like you're never gonna see that in a mm-hmm. in a, just a regular theater. Right. Um, highly recommend it. All right, I'm gonna go there one day. And movies are like twelve dollars instead of seventeen. Still crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know. New York, <laughs> my God. Uh, so shout out to the MoMA. Once again, we have outdone ourselves. We truly have. And we did it. We did it. Ah! Thank you so much to um, Padma Lakshmi. This was a fantastic interview. Word. I've learned so much. I can't wait to listen to it again and learn even more. Mm. Shout out to the Pod Squad. Pod Squad. Okay. All right. (laughs) Close enough. (laughs) This episode was produced by Eleanor Kagan and Antonia Sarahito with editorial oversight from Jenna Weiss-Berman. And production help from Julia Ferlin and Meg Kramer. Um, thanks to Paul Rowest at Argo Studios. Thanks to our musician friends who gave us wonderful, wonderful music. Miss Jean Gray. You can follow her on Twitter at Jean Greasy and Don Will of the rap group Tanya Morgan, which sounds like an R&B singer, but it isn't. You can follow him at D-O-N-W-I-L-L. It sounds like the Woman Crush Wednesday of the 90s or something. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing Tanya Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to heaven. Shout out to Tracy. We keep doing it. We keep being great. <sighs> We're so great. We should take a vacation from being great. Listen. Just be trash for a day. <laughs> we'll follow Tracy it. and her trash at Broken the Poverty. <laughs> <laughs> and follow heaven and her trash at Heaven Rants. Heaven likes the place. Heaven likes the place in the sky and rants which like the thing that people keep permitting Donald Trump to do oh my god you know yo our newsletter is bomb I I would agree with that assessment you know when we're working on the newsletter during the week I don't click on any of anybody else's links so that I can get it on Friday yes I enjoyed so much digest it it's so good I wish I could just watch myself rap you know yeah wish you (laughs) could just be in your own concert yes I understand if you're like what are they talking about I want some of this (laughs) awesomeness go to buzzfeed.com slash another round slash newsletter and sign up and then you will be awesome too also check out our other podcasts uh, at buzzfeed like internet explorer the tell show and our newest politics show no one knows anything nobody knows nothing nothing about anything Uh, hit us on the buzz On Twitter and Facebook at Another Round. Email us, anotherround at buzzfeed.com. And rate us on iTunes. Leave a little nice review. Mm-hmm. Um, drink some water, take your meds, call your mom, dad, person. Get a nice bagel. Uh, a soft one. Mm. Wow. Okay. I We're just, leaving on that note. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye.